Nathan Radke, and since Elena and Lee are away on assignment, today is a Bunker Hunker episode. And since it's just you and me today, listener, I feel comfortable confessing something. I've been feeling nostalgic lately. I think in part it's because of what happened a few Sundays ago. I had just woken up in my cot in my cement box when my phone made an extremely alarming noise. Not a text notification or an update reminder or even an early morning phone call as disturbing as those are. Instead, it was an emergency alert from the Ontario government telling me, and everyone within a 10-kilometer radius of the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station, that there had been an uh, incident. Immediately, Lee, Ellen, and I were frantically texting back and forth to each other, trying to decide how best to survive in the radioactive post-apocalyptic landscape that was about to replace our city. After doing a quick inventory, we realized that I had a hand-crank-powered combination AM-FM radio lantern phone charging station, Lee had a fridge full of beer, and Elena had some walkie-talkies and lots of indestructible plastic children's toys, so we were feeling pretty good about our chances. Before we had a chance to start looting or drawing straws to see who would get cannibalized first, We all received another phone message stating that everything was fine and that the message had been sent in error. So the good news was there was apparently no active nuclear situation happening in our region. But the bad news was that the people in charge of preventing meltdowns were clearly prone to occasionally pressing the wrong button. But the whole situation made me reminisce about my childhood. Watching Saturday morning cartoons, which would occasionally be interrupted by bursting into tests of the emergency broadcast system... Uh, Samples from which, of course, are included in our opening theme song. The emergency broadcast system was designed to let us know when nuclear war had broken out so we could take appropriate actions. Now, even as a kid, I knew there were no appropriate actions to take if nuclear war broke out, other than eating as many chocolate chip cookies as I could before my house, the cookies, and myself were all turned into radioactive rubble and ash. And while I was already rummaging through the remnants of my past, I remembered a story my mom told me when I was a child about something that happened to her when she was a child. And here's how that story went. One summer afternoon in the late 1950s, when my mom was about eight, her father, my grandfather, came home from work. At the time, he was working for Avro Canada, building wings for a brand new experimental fighter plane called the CF-105 Avro Aero. Now, for many Canadians, the story of the Avro Arrow is almost a legend. A homegrown interceptor that would have been faster and more powerful than anything else in the air, uh, that we knew of at least, capable of flying two and a half times the speed of sound while it patrolled the Canadian skies for Russian bombers. Avro Canada had already produced Canada's first jet fighter plane, the CF-100 Canuck, or Clunk as it was often called, but compared to the straight-winged, cautious design of the reliable but conservative Clunk, the Avro Arrow looked like something from the distant future. The nose was as pointed as a needle. The wings were swept-back deltas that ended at the back of the Coke bottle-shaped fuselage. My grandfather was extremely proud of the work the engineers at Avro were doing on the Arrow. 
But on that summer afternoon in the 1950s, it wasn't the arrow that he wanted to tell my mom about. It was something else entirely. Something that was so strange that even as my mom was telling me the story, she was doubting her memory could have been accurate. Because in her recollection of that afternoon, my grandfather had sat her down at the kitchen table and said, Honey, I'm going to show you the future of air travel and had then shown her blueprints for a vehicle that even an eight-year-old could recognize for what they were, a flying saucer. As we've talked about before in our episodes on Area 51 and Project Blue Book, the idea of the flying saucer was well and truly in the public imagination by the late 1950s. Kenneth Arnold had claimed to see UFOs moving like, quote, saucers skipping over a lake, end quote, over the mountains of Washington State in 1947. Only a few weeks later, on July 8th, U.S. Army Public Information Officer Walter Hout had told the press that a, quote, flying disc, end quote, had crashed in a farmer's field near Roswell, New Mexico, before the Army changed their story to a weather balloon, which regular listeners will recognize as Lee's least favorite cover-up culprit. At this point, you can't even mention weather balloons to Lee now without him getting borderline apoplectic. And of course, so much of our understanding of our world comes from pop culture, And in movies, The Flying Saucer had been featured prominently, uh, starting in 1950 with the appropriately titled movie, The Flying Saucer, which I've watched. It is terrible. Although if you're in the mood for awkward, stilted dialogue and long, lingering shots of the Alaskan landscape, then this might be the film for you. On the other hand, if you would rather watch a good movie for some reason, the excellent 1951 film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, also featured an alien landing on Earth in a large saucer. And the 1956 movie, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, had saucers galore, all rendered in glorious stop-motion animation. Today, from the skies of California, the fields of Kansas, the rice paddies of the Orient, the air lanes of the world, come persistent reports of UFOs, unidentified flying objects which we have come to know, as flying saucers. In Dayton, Ohio, the Air Intelligence Command gathers and sifts data from all quarters of the globe. 97% of the objects prove on investigation to be of natural origin, but 3% still are listed as unknown. The Air Force is aware of the widely held belief that some of these could be flying saucers from another planet. While there is nothing conclusive in the evidence, The probing and digesting of information about UFOs continues unceasingly. I think a flying saucer crashes into the Capitol building in that one. But my grandfather hadn't brought home a movie prop. He had brought home the legitimate blueprints for an aircraft that was being designed by Avro Canada. And the United States Air Force had some high hopes for this design. I have the final development summary report for USAF Project 1794 here from 1956, And a quick flip through it shows that the Air Force head honchos thought that this was going to be the for real deal. It is concluded that the stabilization and control of the aircraft in the manner proposed, the propulsive jets are used to control the aircraft, is feasible and the aircraft can be designed to have satisfactory handling through the whole flight range from ground cushion takeoff to supersonic flight at very high altitude. Supersonic tests show that the calculated thrust potential with the present design will provide a much superior performance to that estimated at the start of contract negotiations, with a top speed potential between Mach 3 and Mach 4, a ceiling of over 100,000 feet, and a maximum range with allowances of about 1,000 nautical miles. 
Now, these numbers would be startling today, and in 1956, they were downright astonishing. Mach 3 to 4 means 3 to 4 times the speed of sound. That means 2,300 to 3,000 miles per hour, or 3,700 to 5,000 kilometers per hour. Only the A-12 Oxcart or the SR-71 Blackbird, two of our favorite planes here at the Uncover-Up, could manage to come close to Mach 3, and that was a decade later. And the aircraft described in the Project 1794 report had a few more abilities that made it even more startling. The main one being that this flying saucer-shaped vehicle would be capable of vertical takeoff and landing, or VTOL for short. VTOL had been a bit of an obsession for aircraft designers since the middle of World War II, when it became clear that any modern war was likely going to include massive fleets of bombers unleashing fiery hell from the skies over your city. In World War II, that meant that you had to protect your cities with airfields to launch fighter planes. But those airfields made pretty easy and obvious targets themselves and were easily put out of commission. A few craters in a runway would ground your entire fleet of interceptors. And your fighter planes were extremely susceptible to being shot down when they were taking off or landing. A plane with VTOL capability wouldn't require a long, vulnerable runway, and instead could take off from a field, a parking lot, the deck of a ship, or even the roof of a building. They could be spread across the city for greater coverage and and lesser vulnerability. They could be easily hidden in garages or under tarps. The German Luftwaffe had some weird designs of VTOL aircraft on the books when the war ended. Uh, Lee and I talked about some of those bizarre planes in our episode on the Kecksburg UFO. But post-war, the American Air Force and Navy got into the act by designing, building, and testing some planes that had the ability to take off straight up in the air and land straight down. Uh, They were all terrible. The best one was probably the Convair XFY-1 Pogo. And if you enjoy watching weird old film strips as much as I do, I highly recommend doing a quick internet search for USA Air News Pogo Plane in Flight to watch this thing in, quote, action, end quote. If a plastic Christmas tree and an electric fan had a baby, it would look like the XFY-1. It stood on its tail with the nose pointing up in the air, and it took off by firing up its cartoonishly large nose propellers. It then sort of cautiously lurched into the sky like it was sneaking onto the dance floor but was shy of rejection, and then slowly nosed down until it was facing forward, at which point it functioned like a conventional, if goofy-looking, plane. The real treat is watching the XFY-1 land on its tail again. I don't think I've ever been so impressed by a test pilot as I was by watching that footage. The American Air Force and Navy fascination with designing a VTOL airplane makes perfect sense, but it doesn't explain why they were so taken by the flying saucer shape. To understand why they would be willing to throw money at such an unorthodox design, we should examine a declassified 1955 report from the Air Technical Intelligence Center, the ATIC, an organization that was based out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in the 1940s and 50s, and was often tasked with investigating the capabilities of non-American aircraft, which were often stolen or recovered Soviet jet fighters. Uh, This report is titled Project Silverbug, and was part of an investigation into the feasibility of flying saucer-shaped aircraft. The report comes to the conclusion that it is well worthwhile looking into the saucer concept and also includes the following intriguing sentence. A collection effort should be initiated to determine whether the Soviet bloc is or has been conducting research efforts on a similar project when this work began and the present state of the Soviet development. Why was the U.S. Air Force so concerned about the possibility of Soviet saucers? To answer that, we need to dive deep into the bizarre internal logic of the Cold War, 
which means this episode is about to get Cold War bananas, which our, again, regular listeners will recognize as one of our favorite varieties of bananas. But first, let's dip a toe into the 1940s for a second. As we talked about in our episode on the Kecksburg UFO incident, there were plenty of bizarre airplane designs that came out of Germany during World War II, and some of those bizarre designs looked a little saucerish. The SAC AS6, for example, had a perfectly circular wing and looked like a cross between a Frisbee and a Cessna. It didn't get past the experimental phase, though, and as far as we can tell, it never actually flew. On the other hand, some of the designs from Reimer and Walter Horton looked like they were straight out of a 1950s sci-fi movie. The two brothers had been experimenting with flying wing designs since the 1930s. Basically, planes that, instead of having a body, wings, and tail, looked like boomerangs. By World War II, the work of the Hortons had produced the Horton 9, a jet-powered fighter plane that looked more like a streamlined bat than an airplane. In fact, they look a lot like what Kenneth Arnold claimed he saw flying over the mountains in Washington State in 1947. So it shouldn't be surprising that after Arnold told the world about what he had seen, the American Air Force started worrying that maybe the Hortons had taken their designs to the Soviet Union, and maybe the Soviets had manufactured them. And maybe those weird flying wings were starting to enter American airspace. While most Americans saw a possible alien presence in the skies during the first moment of the 1947 UFO flap, the Air Force saw Russians. Now, to look into this possibility, intelligence agents were sent to Germany in November and December of 1947 to find out where the Horton brothers had ended up. After all, the American government had been bringing former Nazi doctors and scientists into the United States and whitewashing their terrible pasts through Operation Paperclip, so they assumed that the Soviets were probably doing the same thing. But in a classified memo titled, Horton Brothers, Flying Saucers, sent to the Deputy Director of Intelligence European Command, it was reported that neither Horton had been in contact with the Soviets. The memo also included these sentences, which I think demonstrate the confusion and alarm that the 1947 UFO flap had already started to cause in the American intelligence community. As far as the flying saucer is concerned, a number of people were contacted in order to verify whether or not any such design at any time was contemplated or existed in the files of any German Air Research Institute. The people contacted included the following. Walter Horton, Fraulein von der Gorben, former secretary to the Air Force General Udet, Gunther Heinrich, former office for research of the high command of the Air Force in Berlin, Professor Betz, former chief of Aerodynamic Institute in Göttingen, and Eugen, a former test pilot. All of the above-mentioned people contacted independently and at different times are very insistent on the fact that to their knowledge and belief, no such design ever existed, nor was projected by any of the German air research institutions. Clearly, American intelligence had been devoting considerable manpower and time into looking into the possibility that the Germans had been building flying saucers, and that that technology had fallen into Soviet hands. But just as clearly, there didn't seem to be any evidence that the Soviets were working on anything disc-like. And, with the advantage of looking back from 70 years in the future, I can state that I haven't come across any solid proof that the Soviets were working on anything like that either. Although, as we'll discuss in a future podcast episode, that does not mean that the Kremlin wasn't interested in the UFO phenomenon. This whole thing reminds me of the very first podcast episode we did on Project Stargate, in which the U.S. Navy sent out a fake report claiming that they were working on ESP to trick the Soviets into throwing away a bunch of money and time working on ESP themselves. 
But then when U.S. intelligence discovered that the Soviets had started working on ESP research, they became terrified that the Soviets might be onto something, and then U.S. intelligence started working on ESP research. The main designer of the Avro flying saucer, the plans of which my grandfather had snuck home to show his daughter, was a man by the name of John Frost. And John Frost was also suspicious that the sightings of flying saucers in the late 1940s might be the result of the Soviets getting a hold of German plans. As a former uh, Avro employee named Les Wilkinson said in an interview with author Bill Zuck, Frost had an instinctive feeling that perhaps someone somewhere had developed what came to be known as a flying saucer. Out of 200 or more sightings he investigated, he found only two that could not be explained away. Both were in Europe, in the area of Germany. He concluded, rightly or wrongly, that there was a good chance the Germans, with the advanced aeronautical technology they displayed during the war, rockets, buzz bombs, etc., which was far ahead of the British and the Americans, that perhaps the Germans had built and were experimenting with the saucer-like vehicle. So where has all of this gotten us? Well, this is what I think I've put together. One, there was a massive UFO flap in the late 1940s that continued through the 1950s. Two, Air Force intelligence was fairly convinced that the saucers may have been Soviet in origin rather than extraterrestrial. And three, worried that there might be a flying saucer gap in that the Soviets might have better flying saucer technology than the Americans, the Americans started throwing money on flying saucer projects. And one of the main saucer projects was the VZ-9 Avro car, built and tested just a few miles away from the campus where Lee, Elena, and I now lecture at the Avro Canada plant where my grandfather worked. But was the Avro flying saucer any good? In a word, no. The U.S. Air Force was hoping for an aircraft that could take off straight up hover in midair, and fly at four times the speed of sound at 100,000 feet. Instead, they got an aircraft that could careen around dangerously at 35 miles per hour at a height of three feet. The test pilot, the skilled and amazingly nicknamed Spud Pataki, never mastered flying the unstable craft, but apparently did master the art of shutting down the engines, unbuckling his seatbelt, and leaping from the vehicle in less than one second, which was probably the more important skill considering how wobbly the Avro car was in flight. Also, the engines were so loud as to be practically deafening, and were hot enough that the instrument panel would come perilously close to catching on fire after a short flight. The testing process, according to accounts gathered by author Bill Zuck, sounds like it was filled with wild moments. One of the engineers, Desmond Earle, said later, There was a tendency to do a quick and dirty test on something that is a new good idea, to know whether you want to go that way and do more elaborate tests later, more rigorous ones. This philosophy probably explains why, early in the design process in 1954, a group of Avro workers built a small-scale model of the Avro car, attached it to the hood of a 1952 Pontiac sedan, and drove it around the Malton Airport at 85 miles an hour to test the aerodynamics. Once during testing, a jet engine ran wildly out of control, and the entire test crew had to run for their lives, and the only thing that prevented a fairly impressive and destructive explosion was one of the engineers heading back into the building to shut off the fuel supply valve seconds before disaster. And once, a working model got out of hand, as recounted by former Avro engineer John Conway. Frost was a very ingenious guy. To a question someone had posed, to our great surprise, he had worked like the devil over the weekend to make this little machine. He had a hand-welded rotor and engine made up to show us, and then he was going to demonstrate it to the scientific advisory board. All of a sudden, he started up the engine, and the thing began whirling around the room at very high speed. 
I got behind the biggest guy I could find and yelled at Frost to shut the device off. After that, he got directions from me to not do anything like that again. It was basically a hand grenade flying over our heads. If it had let go, we'd all have been shredded. But that was what he was like. I thought it was very interesting to work with him. Interestingly, while the Avro car was a complete failure as a high-flying aircraft, as it turns out, the team at Avro had come extremely close to accidentally inventing the hovercraft, which, when it flew for the first time in 1959, used many of the same principles as the Avro car. Also in 1959, the Avro Aero Project was cancelled, and my grandfather was laid off on a day that has become known as Black Friday. That event in itself is probably worth doing an episode on one of these days. Two years after that, the Avro Car Project was cancelled. A year after that, Avro Canada was gone. Today, both my grandfather and my mother are gone. But a few years ago, I drove down to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, And there, in a giant series of hangars, is the most incredible collection of historical aircraft that I had ever seen. And tucked away in a corner in a hangar filled with dusty old experimental planes, I found the vehicle that my mom remembered seeing the plans for when she was a little girl, and that my grandfather was sure was the future of aviation. And if you go to our Instagram account, at the Uncover Up, and you scroll way down to the bottom, you'll see the picture I took of it in all its weird glory. Now, of course, there are lots of avenues that still need to be explored on this topic. The relationship between the UFO community and intelligence disinformation programs is something that we talked about on our Paul Benowitz episode, and there's an awful lot more to say about it. Uh, The Kenneth Arnold story, which we have mentioned countless times, deserves a deep dive of of its own. Uh, The crashes at Roswell in Aztec, New Mexico, as well as the crash in Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, all should be looked into. And I know there must be at least one of you listening to this who, while I was talking, kept saying to yourself, sure, but when is he going to mention the Chance Vought XF5U1 flying pancake? And if you were that person, I want to have a beer and a four-hour-long conversation about airplanes with you. And many of you will have been asking, what about the possibility that the Air Force was just pretending to be interested in building flying saucers so that they could cover up the fact that there were actually real UFOs flying around? Well, we'll come back to that specific idea when we do an episode on the weird giant Tic Tacs that have been recently chased by Navy fighter planes. So we're definitely returning to the subject of flying saucers. In the meantime, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. And email any questions, complaints, comments, anything like that to podcast at theuncoverup.com. And thanks again for listening.